Welcome to the Football Fives podcast. How are you? Welcome along. Uh, I'm Ryan Keeney. It is a pleasure to have you. Um, along with me, we've got Chris Nee. Hello, Chris. Hello, Ryan. How are you? I'm very well. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, good. Uh, also with me, nearly forgot, uh, David Hartrick. How are you? <laughs> nearly forgot. Nice. Well, I, nearly for- I was about to crack into question one there. I thought I'd done all the intros. Uh, no, I am. <laughs> I'm good. Apologies, we didn't have an episode last week. That was very much my fault. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can blame you. Uh, Dan is not with us, as he's off on a busman's holiday. Um, Barcelona, I think, this time. Or is it Spain in general, or is it just Barcelona? No, it's Barcelona. He is covering the Barcelona-Tottenham game, but I believe he has taken his good lady with him to have a few days before and after. Um, Not much has happened in the last week of football, so we are going to stick with the questions that we had planned for last week. Uh, Question one, Christopher Nee. What have Fulham done wrong, and can Claudio Ranieri fix it? Uh, They haven't dished out enough of those clappers, I think. That's the problem. So, (laughs) a little bit of cardboard, and Claudio will have them fixed. I have uh, almost a personal connection to Fulham's promotion in a perverse sort of way, and it breaks my heart to admit that the run that took them there was was pretty remarkable they came from nowhere last season in the championship and having to get promoted the way they did through the playoffs because they bottled a game against a really poor Birmingham side having had the run that they'd had I think it just showed a little bit of a soft underbelly and sadly that didn't get exposed in the playoffs but it also certainly hasn't been fixed And I think that's the first thing for me, really. They might be richer than God, but they they didn't do what they needed to do in the summer. And this is it's the really obvious answer, but I think there's so much truth in it. It's difficult to ignore. They haven't done enough to navigate a promotion they were ill prepared for, and probably weren't particularly expecting at relatively late stage uh, last season. We all know they spent 100 million quid or thereabouts. But defensively, they brought in Alfie Mawson, who Dave and I have spoken about very briefly on another podcast. Probably not going to keep a team up single-handedly if they've got no other quality defenders. Uh, Joe Bryan, who'd all but signed for Villa in a championship. Uh, and they, they brought in uh, Le Marchand and Callum Chambers on loan. I think have they got, they've got Fosu Menzer on loan as well, haven't they? Mm. Yeah. Um, that just isn't good enough, is it? The, the, no. The, so, I think there's definitely a defensive personnel issue, and I, I I think the second part of the question being about Ranieri and whether he can do it, I, I don't know for sure 
that Jokanovic was an issue in isolation. I suppose it's possible he might not be up to Premier League standard. But I think with his record for promotion, I'd be a little surprised if it turned out that he just wasn't good enough for the top flight. So those defensive personnel, I think, were causing him problems at that level. And they will continue to cause Ranieri problems at that level until they can change him in January. Um, so his challenge for me is to get them that far intact. Um, as it happens, I don't think they have the wherewithal to stay out from this position even. We're now looking at 11 defeats out of 15. That tells a story. I think being below Burnley, who are, I don't think it's unfair to say they're listless at the moment. That tells a story. And being below Southampton, who's just sat their manager, to the surprise of nobody, tells a story. So, I don't think he does have enough to keep them up. And I don't think I necessarily blame him specifically for that. Yeah, I I, I agree wholeheartedly with the, the defence thing. It just, it, I think, uh, from the little I watch of the Championship and from what I've gathered and, and gleaned from others is that Fulham weren't uh, expected to get promoted when they did and they it seemed to be uh, there seemed to be a decision made that they could keep playing the style of football that had got them promoted in the Premier League and they would be fine um, which has proved not to be the case and they, they needed to be defensively a lot better um, it's, it's interesting with Jokanovic that he got Watford up and I know that there was uh there was things around his contract and, and not being able to agree a new deal so it wasn't entirely that Watford decided he wasn't the, the guy but the guy to lead them in the Premier League but they he got them up at a time when they weren't expected to I think he was for Watford he was appointed in the October and got them promoted that same season um, which wasn't planned um, and he, he seems to do this seems to kind of have a, a swashbuckling side but style but that almost leaves his squads then unprepared for the Premier League as it's kind of like, all oh, right, okay. Well this isn't a, a lineup you'd expect and, and obviously it's a handover. Uh, Dave, do you think Ranieri can save them? Um I, I, all the points you've made are extremely valid. Uh like Jukanovic every single game he was in charge of this season changing his back four, I think, tells a story. Um and I think you can upgrade the personnel, but it's not quite—it's not quite Premier League level. But what you do need to do is get a back four that gets some sort of relationship together. I think Ranieri can do that. Um, I think he can possibly upgrade it a little bit again in January. But I'm fortunate enough to have done quite a bit of Premier League football this year, and I've seen Fulham live a couple of times. And I, I think what the other side you need to understand is they, Jukanovic was playing players out of natural positions or not, not playing players to their strength. You know, Sarri were playing way too deep to sort of affect a game. And I, there's a lot, I think, with that squad and that first 11 that just slight adjustments will get quite a big improvement from um, will it be enough well the bottom half of the Premier League isn't very good and you'd have to say they have a chance I, 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 Ranieri is a clever manager and he knows the league and he's won this league 
but I don't know. It, it's it's we've seen teams like Crystal Palace have an absolutely horrendous start last year and finish comfortably mid table. I think there's every chance Fulham could do that. But the the tinker man who no longer tinkers quite as much needs to get some relationships on that pitch, get some of those players back to playing where they actually want to play and pretty quickly. But slight supplementary point here. Having seen Sessegnon a couple of a couple of times in the flesh and, and you know, watched him on TV quite a few times as well. Somebody Gareth Bale that boy, please. Somebody realises that his his natural position is to play much further up the pitch as an all-out attacker, because he has got every single attribute there to, as I said, be an absolute Gareth Bale going forward. But yeah, I they're a funny side for them because I think all of us, all three of us, for one reason or another have a reasonable amount of affection for Fulham because they're just that sort of football club, aren't they? But they have approached this Premier League season completely wrong in terms of a sort of fairly outlandish recruitment drive that that felt like it was starting to resemble a trolley dash at one point. So, I, I don't know, you, you also wonder if all that sort of imbalance in the squad of the new new players, old players, players who played in the championship who are no longer getting any sort of chance. You, you do wonder if there's a little bit to sort of settle and calm down in the dressing room as well. And it, again, just get some relationships going. My gut feeling is that I think they will survive, but it will be very, very close. And they're probably only going to be saved by the fact there will be three worse teams than them. That'd be Ranieri's yeah. greatest achievement in the Premier League, surely. <laughs> I think Fulham will finish 17th and be all right. Mm. Chris? 20th. Dave? Uh, uh, very much for you, Ryan. I think they'll be 17th, uh, saved by the incompetence of 18th, 19th and 20th, rather than them particularly being outstanding. Yeah. And, and speaking of one of the teams that I, I think will be relegated are um, Southampton, which brings us neatly on to question two. Mm. Uh, and Mark Hughes, Dave, what is Mark Hughes for exactly? Well, short of lying down in front of your front door as a draft excluder, I don't really know, to be honest. I mean, it, the thing, I was, I was thinking about this question earlier today, and right, it's, it's no exaggeration to say that one of the things I keep very firmly closeted about, but is nevertheless true, is that I'm a massive, I'm a celeb fan, as you know. And what I've just watched for three weeks is a bloke who I don't really have a, any great affinity for and certainly no footballing affinity for, but that's Harry Redknapp. Um, get on with everybody in the camp, be able to relate to younger members of the camp and be able to laugh and joke around and keep a positive attitude. And you realise that his management style of being able to relate to a group of players, get on with a group of players, understand what drives and motivates them and harness them that way, is what is so sort of sadly lacking in managers like, you know, Mark Hughes and Roy Keane, who they just, from an outsider looking in, they just have no sort of interpersonal skills. They're, they're terrible 
influences on the touchline. They're absolute drains in interviews. And that, that has got, you know, you're not telling me when he walks into the changing room, he's suddenly sweetness and light and everybody loves him. And I think, you know, without sounding all sort of AMF about this, but footballers are very different now and footballers have changed a lot even in the last five years, never mind the last ten. And the personality stuff, you know, looking after a young player who has the world at his feet and more money than God is is a massive part of the job now. They They don't, you know, you can't just be all stick anymore there has to be a hell of a lot of carrot and i i have a feeling he will go into the championship and he will probably be reasonably successful and he may well get a club up and then it will just implode two to three seasons in as it always does with mark hughes and then he will go and get another championship job and it will just be him and steve bruce eternally getting championship jobs Yeah, Chris, would you have him in the championship? No, <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Um, I'm hopeful that certainly Steve Bruce is uh, more or less done as a championship level manager now, because um, while I retain uh, a huge amount of respect for the way that he carried himself during his most difficult time at Villa, it was just very obvious that he didn't have the ability to meet the targets that they had. And I think the same is, is going to be true of Mark Hughes. Now, he will probably still have the effect of having most previously been a Premier League manager, so there will be some demand for him in the Championship. But getting a team up from the Championship, unless you are actual Neil Warnock, is different to how it used to be. I honestly think that the, the Championship day of the dinosaur has, has gone. And Mark Hughes, while I wouldn't necessarily write him off as a dinosaur, is starting to look very old-fashioned all of a sudden. Because um, he has he, he has had his moments, Mark Hughes, over the years. You know, I, I think um, I, I don't know how well he was received in in the Wales job, but he certainly had some some flashes of interest there. Um, and he was he was okay at Blackburn, and then the the spiral downwards from Man City was was where he started to really kind of lose that feeling of newness, wasn't it? You know, he was he was boring at Fulham and then resigned, which was the most interesting thing he did there. Um, did he, did he make a load of noise about being ambitious and then yeah wound up at QPR six months later? Yeah, which yeah. which again just fits in with the whole. <laughs> Know, know your audience, know the people you're talking to, Mark. I don't. The problem is, Chris, I know exactly what you're saying, I know exactly what you're leading to, but wherever he's been, whether he's done a decent job or a bad job, there's zero affection. I mean, yeah. I, was, I was speaking to a couple of Wales fans about him about six months ago. There's just zero affection for him, or, well, or a very small well. amount, you know? It's obvious why, because like, less than a year at QPR before he was sacked, Spent a load of money there. Certainly played his part. Uh, Stoke, boring, eventually crap. Southampton, boring, eventually crap. He's just... Even if he has the little little knack of galvanising in the early days at a club, he's just utterly uninspiring. And his Blackburn team at least had an identity. It wasn't a good one. 
but it was an identity. They were filth. It was largely based around Rocky Santa Cruz. Yeah, and, and nowadays you could say so. If, I mean, it may, might be giving Southampton too much credit to say that he um, was was a part of sucking the identity out out of that club. Um, and it was it's not even sucking out the biggest part of the identity because that would be too interesting for him. Um, I, I just wouldn't want him within a hundred miles of my club or indeed my front door because. Um, the guy is temperamental wallpaper. Good bloody riddance to him. Yeah. I when I was pondering this, I remember his Fulham team, and I remember he let he resigned from Fulham because he said he had expectations, be uh, ambitions beyond the club, or wanted to, to further himself. And then, yeah, I thought he was coming uh, to Villa because of that. Went he went to was at QPR like the following. So he, I think he resigned in the summer. Was at QPR the following year, um, in the the January window. Or, um, and I kind of at that point I I remember in my head thinking oh that was a quite a nice Fulham team and and that was relatively entertaining and then that was probably where after being uninspiring in the city job and and kind of pushed out when they were in the mix but but never looking like they would kick on you kind of you could you had, there was some sympathy but mm. looking back on that Fulham season Clint Dempsey Clint Dempsey was their top scorer with thirteen goals and then the second highest was Breda Hangeland with seven. In all competitions, and Bobby Zamora, um, and a few others, and you realise they weren't actually as interesting as I thought they would be. Um, just not nearly as much fun, um, and yeah, just kind of a bit, just a bit mere, I think, in general, about the way that that Mark Hughes kind of manages his football teams. I remember when he got when he was touted around for the side. Oh, sorry, when. Um, when Southampton sacked their manager earlier this year, the first manager, um, that evening I was training for a marathon um, and I was off on a kind of long run on a Monday night and there was Monday night football and it was Manchester City against somebody. but And Hughes got sacked at half-time and, and Robbie Savage happened to be on Five Live so suddenly started touting his mate for the Southampton job as a firefighter <laughs> something to win there and I never I just I couldn't understand that there wasn't anything about Mark Hughes having just lost a, lost the Stoke job with Stoke having abysmal an, an abysmal defensive record that season and not being that Stoke team anymore and you can kind of understand him wanting to change that side but he changed that Stoke team for the worse and, and as you say gave them no identity he was suddenly being tied around as the man to firefight a, a different relegation threat inside out of that trouble, which he, he ultimately did, but kind of more through, again, the incompetence of others rather than necessarily anything he seemed to inspire that team into doing. He was well received for a while at Stoke because he um, they played football in a way that they hadn't done very often under Tony Pulis. And they had some of those players go in. And I think probably it was uh, when they got Shakir and Arnautovic ticking over together that it started to look like a new stoke for a few weeks yeah but it's um, that but it's, it was just it was just a, it was it was on that continuum from old stoke to no stoke that it happened to just be okay for a bit it's that talent gap thing though it, like i've said before chris where the squad was so even uneven it was untrue you you had you know like players who had come through lamasia and trying to play football with Charlie Adam you know it was you can't have that that it was just all over the place that that team was 
it, I know what you mean. It was good for about five to ten games. He looked like he was trying to build something, and then it just went rotten really, really quickly because everyone went, yeah, this squad is just way too weird. The first 11 is even weirder. Some of the choices he was making with some of the players and the positions he was playing them in. I just think he's a busted flush. I think he's done. Yep. I agree. I'm I'm certainly not trying to defend him in any way. I'm just thinking back to, to moments in his career when it it looked as if the public view of him was a lot better than it is now. And it yeah. was it was flashes in the pan. It's it's Glenn Whelan and Marco Anitovic and Charlie Adam and Mami Biram Juf and Jonathan Walters being in the same squad, isn't it? Uh, yeah, with like on top of that with, with Bojan, Ibrahim Athlay, yeah. who was at one point was an absolutely brilliant player. And and others just all over the place. And Breck Shea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great American hope. Yeah. Oh Breck Shea. <laughs> right. Uh so where is Mark Hughes rocking up next? Because he's not done. Billericky Town. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely made for him. Can you imagine? I, I, I don't know. I can just see him at one of that those sort of mid-table championship clubs who still clings on to the two or three seasons they had in the Premier League and still believes that's where they should be. Yeah. He just feels it, like a fit for one of those clubs. And we he's absolutely know. got the uh, we think we're getting a Premier League manager championship job. Left yeah, yeah. So I know that I, I, I'm not saying Reading because they've sacked their manager. They are an absolute mess at the moment, Reading, and there's no money in the club. But that sort of club that has had a couple of seasons in the Premier League and you know believes that's where they should be, one of them without a shadow of a doubt will turn to Mark Hughes at some point before the season's done. And will Mark Bowen be with him? Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, question three: Abuse of referees. Discuss, Chris. Nay. All in favour? <laughs> um, no, it, uh, sure. Abuse of referees is bad. Um, we all know that we need them. We all know they deserve better. Um, and I want to make it very clear that I'm not innocent here. There are some things referees do that aren't mistakes. I can accept mistakes uh, that make me angry, and I am not excusing those occasions when I shout at a referee on a Saturday afternoon because I do want to be better, and I'm trying this season to be a bit better. Um, I chucked this question in, and the reason is because I want to answer another question. Um, because I, I want to talk about another form of um, referee abuse, which is the uh, calculated strategic practice of a whole team getting into the ref from the first whistle to the last. Because I am sick to the back teeth of watching uh, a team directed by its manager surrounding, haranguing, abusing the referee, not through temper, but through some attempt to influence the way that referee manages the game. And it's a horrible thing to watch. It's a horrible way of watching a football match. But ultimately, they're seeing it as a way of trying to gain an advantage in the game. But there's someone on the end of it you know, and there is somebody on the end of 90 minutes of getting shouted at and sworn at and occasionally threatened and surrounded by some fairly sizable lads at the division that I watch. Um, and that is a human being in the middle of it. 
You know, it's 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 not they're not playing FIFA. You know, they're not finding a way to win a game. They are making a conscious pre-match tactical decision to ruin the day of somebody who may never ever show up for a football match again and and, and we need those people to be around. So I would like to find some way of minimizing premeditated abuse of referees. Discuss. <laughs> well, the thing you're talking about, Chris, is like you're looking at it from a non-league level, but like there's a lot of points I want I want to make in this, which I'll come on to. But there are also Premier League clubs that do this, Chris. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm I'm looking at it from from a, a Midland uh, Premier Division point of view, but I I don't see it as a non-league only issue. No, the I've I've done an awful lot of Premier League and Championship games last couple of years, and there are Premier League teams, some very very good Premier League teams who may or may not have featured in Amazon Prime documentaries, who definitely set out to do that, and it's not. You see, the abuse you're talking about, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not the classic photo of Man United players with Roy Keane shouting in the referee's face when a penalty's been awarded. It is the constant denial of every decision. It is the constant pushing the referee on even the most obvious of things, trying to just enact that pressure on them so that when the marginal calls come... They go in your favour because they're sick of the abuse. Yeah, I, th- I think possibly in non-league, the latter manifests itself in the former more mm. often. You know mm. that 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 um, decision by decision management of the referee is frequently abusive in a way that it's probably not in the Premier League. But that's the principle, yeah. Mm. And I I see it in you know I see it in Premier League games where you have a side and it's it's <laughs> more often than not it's a home side. And they are just constantly, literally, the, the the most obvious of decisions. And they make sure there's one or two players just running by the referee, giving him a little bit. And it just increases that pressure all the time. But there's, an, there's another side to this, Chris. Right? I, like, I'm not condoning the abuse of referees at all. And I think particularly at lower league level and not at a non-league level, there should be massive sanctions on abuse of referees because these are people who don't have the benefit of being linked up to their linesmen of you know and all these various other advantages that top level referees have but if i can just talk about the higher end of the scale for a minute chris i have seen the the standard of officiating is often absolutely terrible absolutely terrible and i went to i went to uh Huddersfield town one brighton hove albion two <laughs> um and it was a wonderful game enjoyed by all great day five stars trip advisor right but michael oliver had i mean it was it was embarrassing so there, whatever you think of the red card, and I personally can see exactly why it was a red card for Steve Mooney. I, I think we've all seen the incident. I, I'm sort of in the camp that thinks it was probably an orange card, 
which means it's a red card because such a thing doesn't exist. It doesn't... That Don't let that cloud the mind from the fact that twice in the first half he gave free kicks to Huddersfield Town for their players running into each other, one of them which led to the penalty incident. Twice him and his linesman missed clear corners, one for Brighton, one for Huddersfield, where literally defender hacked it out and for some reason he gave a goal kick. There were throw-ins that were wrongly given. Like, really, I'm talking really Billy Basic stuff. I'm not talking about marginal calls or anything like that. And the problem is with defending them is you want to defend them, but I have, like, genuinely, I have seen some really terrible refereeing performances at the very highest end of our game. So the problem you have is, if that's the level at the very top, you get further and further down. And, you know, again, I, I can't condone it, but sometimes I can understand it because some of these officials are absolutely dreadful. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> they they really are. They really are. And you've got to look at, uh, do we need to look at the training procedures? Do we need to look at the, the route to refereeing? Do we need to look at are are we you know offering are we are we turning referees professional too quickly uh, because it's I mean I really want to defend them I feel like this is match of the day you know we're picking on referees and I, I really don't want to do that and I think we can all all three of us here and Dan too if he was sat here would say we have actually made a point since we started this podcast of trying not to jump on referees mm. but. At the same time, I have seen some like unbelievably bad decisions, and these aren't, you know, the as I said, these aren't always the big decisions. It's not the decision that that leads to the goal, you know, or the marginal off cycle. I'm talking about really simple stuff, you know. Like I say, defender clears the ball out, and the corner's not given. You're not going to get, you know. Oh, never mind, ref. I'm sure you'll get the next one right from the players or the crowd, if you can't get between the three of you and the fourth official on the byline, the simple stuff, right? And this is why, like, I look at VAR and I think, well, that's, you know, that's absolutely brilliant. I think it worked to a point in the World Cup if we're going to give them that level of support. But bloody hell, if you can't get a throw-in given the right way, <laughs> it's it's, you know, there's something else wrong. There's something else fundamentally wrong. I should say it's absolutely acceptable for me to give the linesman a running commentary on his performance. <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely excusable. I, I think the I think you can lie referees a, a day off. I don't uh, like a, not a day off, but a bad day. I think you can in the same way. Some of this comes down to kind of the way the the highlights are, and and I don't like the way that kind of match of the day or any live coverage when it comes to half time and, and full time and the analysis and that 90 seconds that two minutes we we seem to be forced to discuss whether the referee got the big decisions right or wrong rather than looking at whether any of the players made got their big decisions right or wrong should they have crossed the ball low or high or shot or pulled it back or looked around or not made that tackle or not pulled the player down it, it, it's easier for ex-players and, and players who will have some teammates on, on that team or some ex-teammates that, that will be there to kind of scrutinise the referee's performance and, and not f- 
fully kind of understand the rules and and i worry that we're, we're doing a little bit of that i think referees have a, a tough job and they're allowed to get things wrong and they're allowed to, to get things off it just there, there is a an element of this where chris mentioned where if it gets to the point where teams are going out of their way to make a referee's life as difficult as possible by getting into their face from the first 15 seconds first 20 seconds and then getting a contact about it that's not good and that's not helpful um and similarly um being on a, a referee's back i i think i don't i, I mean I, I can't say i've spent a whole lot of time watching michael Oliver this season i don't know if that performance in that game was a particularly bad one or he had an off day or didn't necessarily like the line the assistant referees team that he had um, I've seen the thing is, of... I think you're exactly right, Ryan. But I've seen him four times this season, and he's had four off days. So fine. Then it does. Then he probably needs some time away, and he needs some support. And Andor, he needs to be. I think it's the support. I think you just said the right word. To be honest with you, Ryan, I I don't think it's. I don't really like this system of oh they've they've got to go and do a lower league game <laughs> as some form of punishment, and then oh it's not a punishment. It's just a just to refresh and what have you. It is a punishment. Everybody knows it's a punishment. It's an extremely high-profile punishment, and that only amps up the pressure on them. Yeah. I, fundamentally, I think that's exactly what it comes down to. I think it's support. I, I think it's retraining. It's learning. It's looking at, do they consist... Do, you know, are, do they run any sort of figures? So do they know that, you know, certain linesmen are weak on certain decisions? And... Can they be trained? Do they need to have a look at that, etc.? We know that officials get a, a really high percentage of stuff right, and we've always celebrated that fact on this pod, and we've always said, you know, you've got to look at what they get right. But there are fundamentals that are... We tend to focus on the big things that go wrong, but when you watch it regularly and you see the, the little stuff that perpetually goes wrong, you think, well... This is pretty poor, really. Yeah, I can't offer any insight into what they do, but my understanding is that top-level referees are, you know, as up to date on their own performance and the details thereof as most players would be. They're they're right on it. You know, they take their profession very seriously, and I think it's right that we celebrate that they do most of it to a pretty high standard. I think certainly at that level. Um, and I think we're able to go through their decisions with extraordinary detail that they don't have at their disposal at the time. Um, so we need to be mindful of that. Um, and at the level that I watch, I am more tolerant of genuine mistakes than I've ever been because you see what they have to put up with and you see how much they get right and you see how many of them will genuinely show up on a Saturday and have a good game that when a mistake happens with the lack of support that they have at that level, it's a mistake and you have to accept that. Um, so I, I think the issues are very different at the top and the bottom of the game, really. Um, and the thing that unites all of it is that we have to hope that we can improve our officials over time, but more importantly, we have to make sure we've got some. Mm. So all of us in football I, need to wind our necks in. I think it's also important that it's not just a football problem. Um, that uh, it, it, Referee abuse and, and people having a go at the referees and, and 
to thinking they can referee the game better than the referee when they're playing and it happens in other sports it happens in rugby it happens in court ball which I've played and I've seen <laughs> and and given said given some abuse to referees so it but we I'm mean, admittedly is a slightly different level and, and the stakes are, are slightly lower but this just happens uh, it's kind of one of those things that there is something feeding that at a high level whether it's it's kind of seen on on tv and and seen as okay to kind of pick fault in the referee's performance before you actually look at the fact that your own team has shipped 10 or 15 goals that you really shouldn't have uh, you can't blame all of those on on a poor refereeing performance or on um, the referee missing you know a couple of throw-ins here or there that they're not all right, there are some instances where a throw-in in the wrong direction can throw a team off and, and you can see the goal quite quickly, but they're not the big things that, that mean you, you get relegated a season or you don't win a league title, um, etc. It's not referee's fault. Move on? Yes. Question four, Chris, I think. Uh, everybody's watching Saul Campbell at Macclesfield Town. Has he taken on an impossible task? Um... Impossible's too strong, but it's going to be fascinating to watch. And I, I think um, we all know the reasons why Sol Campbell hasn't been offered a, a higher job, but I think we can all agree that it's fantastic that we finally have a Conservative managing in the Football League. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's not going to be easy for him because they've already lost 14 games, I think, in, in this season. Um They it looked an impossible task before the Exeter game last week, which they won, uh, and suddenly it didn't look so impossible at all. And now again, it looks bloody difficult. And the reason for that is they're they're in so much trouble um, that losing ground this far into the season is is, is bad news for them. Um, they are now three points below Notts County. They're six points behind set twenty second place, um, and and losing ground after uh, Cheltenham winning last week is not going to do him any favors at all. So there is no getting away from it. There is a long way to go. It's there to be rescued, but it's going to be really difficult for him. And I'm a bit surprised he's taking it on that basis. Not because it's low down, not because of any other reason or whatever, but he has taken on a job where even failing doesn't prove him a failure. It's that much of an uphill task for him. There is going to be so much attention on this compared to the usual Macclesfield Town relegation battle. Um, And he's made sure of that. And even without the things he'd said, the fact that he's Sol Campbell puts this this task that he's got facing him in the spotlight as well. So I am... He's he's not very far, but he's gone up in my estimation for taking this job. I honestly thought he would hold on forever until he got the job that he felt he was entitled to. Um, I think personally, and and this this it may be controversial, but I think he has done um, not more harm than good, but certainly as much harm as good in the um, black managers conversation. And I think he's found himself at a club that. Um, isn't breaking new ground by appointing him as a black manager. They've they've done it before. They have, um, I think, two previous black managers in their history. Yep. Um, so there's a there's a certain set of circumstances here that make me want him to do well. Um, I, I think the recent England involvement he had, 
put him in a positive light as well. But he's already opened his mouth, hasn't he? So yeah. I, I I find it I find it difficult to to want him to do well because I I I I I've never been in an interview with him and I've never been in a position to offer him or not offer him a job um or to offer him or not offer him an interview but the 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 public proclamations that he makes about himself make me think he might just be not the kind of bloke you might you would want around your football club and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the color of his skin. That doesn't explain all of all of the other black managers who haven't um, got the opportunities that um, some other high-profile players have, have been given higher up the pyramid. Sol Campbell in isolation. I think there are other things that are off-putting about him. However, I think it would, in the round, be a good thing for him to do a good job. Yeah, I I mean I find it uncomfortable that we that Saul Campbell is a black manager. Um he's not just a football manager. Or or before this a wannabe football manager. He was a wannabe black football manager. Yeah, and it, um, the thing is, right, he, like he's he's owned that and he's owned the conversation about that. Um, yeah, yeah. And, absolutely. and quite rightly, he's pushed that cause. And he's put, he's attached his name and his skin to that cause, which is a very, very, very worthy cause. When you look at how many black players have come through the Premier League in the last 10, 15 years and the absolute lack of black managers that have followed that, it is disproportionate. And he's made himself a part of that conversation. But you're right. Yeah, I also find it weird that he wanted to stand for the Conservative Party in 2015, I think it was, and then wasn't selected as a, a candidate. Just it was, was it, it was, was it the mayoral election? Bit, uh, yes, I think so. It was in the London, mayor of London election. It just, it felt like a bit of, it, it, yeah, weird. Um, <laughs> but then why would, I don't know, I just, I can't remember anybody, anybody else that was kind of proclaiming themselves seriously to be a, a football manager then going off and, and doing those other thing, um, but then I feel like I'm uh, drifting into Dave Kitson territory of trying to find other reasons um, to uh, to justify my unconscious bias. Other secret reasons. Um, I think other secret reasons like deleted Instagram posts. Um, I I th- I I can't quite understand why Saul Campbell has taken this job. I I think he's got to be commended for t- uh, being willing to take on a, a job in League Two. I can't. I can't imagine Macclesfield time were inundated with too many high-profile um, kind of applicants for for the role, given the predicament they're in and the fact that to get out of that position, um, thirteen points from from their first twenty-one, they need to win ten or eleven of their final twenty-five games a season, which is more in that league, kind of Ryan. That, I think more, to be honest. Well, I mean, based on the previous seasons, it it, it could be different. And obviously, the points needed to stay up fluctuates. Yeah. But based on previous seasons, teams that stay up have won twelve to fourteen games, and um, so nine nine to eleven wins, I think, might get them the bottom six or seven or eight teams are not winning matches. It's yeah. not happening, and that that Cheltenham win that has suddenly get, created this six point gap um, from twenty fourth to twenty second is like 
one of a handful of wins in the last five games for, for that little group of teams. So it, it might be lower than you might expect, but it's a big old gap to overhaul already. Yeah. It's it's an incredible ask and, and good luck to him. Um, yeah, it's just... I, it's, uh, yeah, I, nobody wants to listen to three white guys debating racism in, in football because we, I think we all accept that it exists to certain levels, but we are not the voices to listen to on this. No, I, I'm, I'm, me and Piers, Piers Morgan, and Dave Kinson, <laughs> we can tell you a thing or two about black players. Let me tell you. Um, yeah, the thing is with the, with the, the, the racism conversation, and it's a an important thing to talk about. But I think that part of the discussion about Sol Campbell and Macclesfield is just something for us to go yep he's got the job great and now we're going to discuss how massively difficult that job is going to be for him or anyone and the fact that it's such a high profile thing is going to just increase the pressure on what he's going to have to do and the things that he said about his own abilities are going to increase the pressure Um, but if he's anything like the coach he thinks he is he can do that Whatever type of manager he might be, yeah, I, I think uh, it's it's difficult because there's it's almost in, the question is has he taken on an impossible task? But it's almost impossible to answer this question without answering the completely the question that's hanging in the air about racism and black managers, isn't it? This is this is the problem and. Hmm. In purely footballing terms, I think it is an impossible task. And I, you know, the short answer to this question is yes, I personally think it is an impossible task. And I hope that he's essentially being given a free hit. So, you know, you've come in, you're going to get us a massive publicity, you're probably going to get us a couple of players um, in January or the close season that we wouldn't have got normally um, who are going to want to come and see what Sol Campbell's all about. Let's see what you can do next season. So that's the football answer. But the other side of things, why is Sol Campbell taking this job? There is this is the problem. I I support a team. We have Chris Hutton. We have a black manager in charge, and I'm sort of I don't know. I I, I find myself guilty of. I don't know, just just forgetting that it's an issue because my club has a black manager and, you know, it just feels normal. It feels right. He's doing a superb job. The fact that he's black really doesn't come into it. Take my head out of that bubble and you look around the league and you see the scope of the problem and how how few black managers there are and it really does get depressing really, really quickly. The problem is, like, Chris said, I have a little bit of knowledge, but nothing I'd massively be willing to go on the record here about. But Sol Campbell has not helped himself at a lot of the jobs he's applied for, um, particularly when it's got to interview stage, shall we say. So I think there's two sides to this. I think I'm glad he's got the job. I'm glad he's got his chance. I'm hoping it's a free hit, but I don't think we should fall into the trap of sort of saying well Sol Campbell should have got a championship job just because X did because 
Sol Campbell is quite a difficult character, you know, that he is he is <laughs> renowned as being quite a difficult teammate. You know, there's lots of his former teammates who have, have gone on record and said he was he was very difficult over certain things. And my my worry on a footballing level is that Sol Campbell is gonna go into that club and he's gonna get hacked off and just walk out. And if he does, that's just going to leave <laughs> such a bad taste. It's it's untrue. I really, really want him to do well. I really want him to do well. And I really want him to do well on lots and lots of levels. Um, and that's exactly where you were sort of aiming, Chris, as well. But do I think he will? I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. Well, and that's not is, about being um, at, at Macclesfield Town. I think that's we, more about being Sol Campbell. We don't know anything about Sol Campbell, the football manager. Nobody does, you know. No. So it's, it's completely impossible to tell. I, I want him to, to do well um, because if he is a an able English coach, then I need him. You know, I like I I want English coaches to to be the very best they can. Um, so I I, I want all of the the English uh, coaches and English managers in the system to impress. Um, but I can't have a Tory doing well. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Now let's move on. <laughs> all right. Question five, Dave. The UEFA Nations League has been enjoyed by many of us. What tournament should the football gods invent? Um, well, the, my th- the first thing I thought of was that obviously maybe I don't know a cup for all the national nation cup winners. I don't know what we call it, cup winners cup or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, we need to workshop that. But my second thought was a proper federation-backed tournament for older age players, maybe played on a Sunday afternoon going into the evening when I'm having my tea, called, I don't know, call it the Masters. Maybe have like five or six aside teams. Do it on a domestic level or international. I'm not particularly bothered. Play it through the summer when there's no other football on. And I'd be perfectly happy with that. The the reality is is I don't know what to, what what tournament the football gods will invent next, but whatever it is, you can guarantee that players will be rested in it. <laughs> I I'm not against the Europa League too, as long as it gets a new name. That I because it seems from what I was reading and and what I listened to on on other. Uh, fine, long-running podcasts. Um, I I like it. I, there's there seems to be a bit of a lean towards some of the domestic cup winners um, going into it ahead of the Europa League and some playoffs and and still that kind of that drip down and and teams kind of falling down in the Champions route and everything like that. So I, given the success of the Nations League, and I I think even. When the Nations League was first mooted, I didn't see too much of a problem with it. I thought it, it got a bit confusing and the playoffs and everything now. 
now that we're in practice actually i think everybody's getting a little bit on board with it but this this part will get confusing in november time when some teams from pot b have qualified and therefore don't need the playoff and and so some of the losers from pot a drop down that haven't qualified and some of the losers from pot b drop into the pot c etc uh but yeah europa league 2 give it a, a new name uh i like what was yours dave the cup winners the cup, maybe league? the cup winners cup the cup winners it cup, works yeah. doesn't it give it that yeah i like it um let's let's get that on there and uh and make it happen chris non-league anglo-italian cup yeah bring back the zenith data <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say the uh, non-league Anglo-Scottish Cup, but that's actually sort of happened, and it looked like a lot of fun. Mm. Let's just bring back all the old tournaments: Makita International, Zenith Data Systems, Anglo-Italian Cup Winners' Cup, just proper Masters football. I'm missing out. the Rouse Cup. Bring back the Rouse Cup, Chris, at international level. Yeah. Head Would tennis. Would like a? Would we like a proper Club World Cup? Do you think we could get involved with that? Nah. Nah. I, I think it's really difficult, isn't it? Because it is it is proper in some places. Yeah. It's only because Europe te- treats it with sort of utter disdain that we sort of fall into the trap of thinking no one cares. I mean, in, in South America, it's absolutely massive. You know, it's it, it really Do you think is. But I just, I don't know, I just to, uh, briefly, a serious point on that sort of the Europa League B. I was doing a bit of research, right? And I'm a bit like you. I, I, I'm sort of quite, I'm finding myself, despite being completely blasé and nonplussed about the Europa League, I'm sort of looking at a, a, a League 2 version and thinking about some of the clubs that might be in there, you know, and you get a chance to watch and have a chance to actually do well and possibly win something out of it and it i don't know it just suddenly seems quite interesting in a way that the actual europa league a isn't <laughs> which seems seems a bit odd doesn't it? it seems slightly the wrong way round yeah i i can find it now and i should have kept it in my notes but there was something that basically took the teams that would have qualified for it this season and there was a lot to kind of there was a lot I got on board with, um, and, and lots to kind of to play around with the the league too. Um, yeah, I I'm inclined to just get teams playing less league matches so we can have slightly more cup competitions. I like that there's two domestic cups in in England and and even in uh, in Scotland. Just more cups, more knockout, more peril. Don't really mind that that players get rested. Um, I think we can. Call it kind of a pod there. Let's right? call it a pod. Let's call it a pod. Good. Uh, yeah, that that's about it. I don't think we need to uh, discuss anything else. Uh, we should be back next week for a secret Christmas episode. Um, if I can get these three together at the same time. Um, until then, bye bye. See ya. <laughs>